studying the Beatitudes, uh, one of the more famous passages in the scriptures. And, um, and today we're going to cover a lot of the framework um, that's going to, we're going to build upon uh, over the next few uh, weeks. Um, and I want to do something maybe a little odd. I want to start in Luke. All right. I want to start in Luke. And here's the reason. Um, well, first, let me caveat. It's not always a great idea to start interpreting a passage in one gospel just strictly with a passage in another gospel. Because, as we've spoken about before, the gospels are written in four different directions to four different peoples, right? And so you can kind of muddy the waters uh, by, by trying to sort of cross over uh, a lot of those threads. But um, Luke and Matthew follow, in many ways, the same structure in the same direction. But what's helpful about Luke is that Luke was written to people like us. Um, Matthew was written to people who grew up bathing in the scriptures. Now, that doesn't mean that they, they understood the significance of the scriptures, but uh, the, the, um, the audience to which Matthew was writing was very, very, very familiar with the Old Testament, um, which means that sometimes he could wink and nod and whisper an idea, and his recipient audience is going to say, oh, Luke's written to Gentiles. Luke's written to people who didn't necessarily grow up dwelling deep in the Old Testament. And so sometimes he makes explicit something that's implicit um, in, in Matthew. And that happens this morning. So I want you to first turn with me to Luke 4. Touching on the same moment, heading in the same direction... Luke's gospel shouts what Matthew's gospel whispers. And I think we've got to get there if we're going to understand the Beatitudes, okay? So turn with me to Luke 4, and let's read together. The text is going to be on the screen. Um, and also, uh, I'm going to start in uh, verse um, 13. Luke 4, 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, Jesus departed from him. Oh, I'm sorry. The devil departed from Jesus until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were, filled, were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Alright, so first thing I want to stress is this is happening at exactly the same moment as our passage in Matthew. 
All right? I don't know if you caught it, but he's leaving the wilderness temptation right at the beginning of this passage. So, so this is right on the heels of Jesus having been baptized and the Spirit falling on Jesus at his baptism. And then he exits into the wilderness, right? And, and, the, and the enemy tempts him in the wilderness. Um, and he, uh, he resists the enemy and the enemy flees from him. And then he returns to Galilee to preach the gospel. Exactly what's been unfolding in Matthew is unfolding here in Luke. All right? But instead of shifting almost directly to the Sermon on the Mount, Luke shifts to a particular moment in a particular synagogue. Okay? In a moment where Jesus preaches from the book of Isaiah. Now, I want to back up even further for a moment, and I talk a little bit about Isaiah. Isaiah was written uh, a little bit more than 700 years before Jesus opened that scroll to read it, okay? 700 years, it's a long time. And it, it was written with this trifold purpose, okay? Isaiah was written as uh, a warning to people, to the, to the people of Israel who were on the threshold of exile. So, so Isaiah is written actually to the people of Judah, um, who, who were sinning in waves by generations against God. And, and it's a warning to them to repent or else face uh, exile from the promised land. But at the same time, the book of Isaiah is written prophetically anticipating that they will be exiled from the promised land as a message of hope for those generations. You follow me? And then... Towards the end of the book, you get this vision that, like, this, this yes, is particularly written to the, the people of Israel who are exiled from the promised land, but generally, it's written to all of the exiled peoples in all of the world, all right? We are, each of us, exiles from the promised land. The, the Garden of Eden was the first exile, and every other exile since then has been a uh, a shadow of that exile. We are a people exiled. And the message of Isaiah, yes, is particularly to the people of Judah, and yes, is particularly to the people of Israel, but it is generally to all exiled people, and it's a message of hope in the coming kingdom. All right? That's what Isaiah is doing. Now, Jesus opens up to Isaiah 61, and we see this prophecy that God will send a spirit-filled messenger to proclaim an upside-down kingdom. Now, here's what I mean by upside-down kingdom. All the people that were rejected by society, right? The poor, the imprisoned, the broken, the grieving, right? All these people who were rejected by society, they were outcasts. These are the people that are going to inherit the kingdom. It's a message of hope for the broken exile, right? He says, he says, Isaiah says, there's going to be a, a guy coming filled with the Holy Spirit and he's going to proclaim a message of good news to the poor. And then in Luke, we see the Spirit fall on Jesus and he leaves the wilderness full of the Spirit and he shouts to the poor and to the broken and to the imprisoned, I am that messenger and this is the year of the Lord's favor. See where I'm going? He's saying, he's saying, I am the message. This is fulfilled in your hearing, right? The, the, the prophecy is the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news 
to the poor. And Jesus is saying, that's me. This passage is about me. And I'm doing that right now. Okay? Now this is Luke's way to introduce the teaching of Jesus. This is Luke's way to introduce the teaching of Jesus. But Matthew's way to introduce the teaching of Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? So I want you to turn now to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. We're going to start in verse 1. Now, I'm going to have this on the screen throughout. Uh, We're going to bounce back and forth to certain aspects of this passage. But this is one where it's important for you to open your Bible and to see it. Because we want to talk about structure, and you can't really see structure when it's on multiple slides, okay? So hold up your Bible. So hold up your Bible when you get there. And I want you to, I'll read from Isaiah 61 later. I want you to stay on Matthew, if you're okay with that. All right. Um, Let's read together. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay. So, to, to get this passage, we need to understand three things, I think. Uh, we need to understand the structure of the passage. We need to understand the language of the passage. And we need to understand the background of the passage. So that's going to structure our time together this morning. Uh, we need to draw close to see kind of wh- how this passage is structured. We need to understand particulars about the language he's using. And then we need to go back and look at the background. Okay, so first, let's look at structure. This is where it's going to be important for you to open your Bible, and see the passage in front of you, okay? Um, if, you have a, if you're using an iPhone Bible uh, and you don't have the whole passage on your screen, grab the Pew Bible and look at it, okay? So I want to show you something that's present in this passage, and that is uh, the, the structure of this passage is very interesting and very intentional. All right, let me show you. Read that first sentence. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see what just happened? All right, we've got present tense, present tense, right? The sand, it's a sandwich. It's an envelope 
Present tense starts the passage and present tense ends the passage. And everything in between is future tense. All right, I want to show you one more thing. Look back, first verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, same thing, right? Same thing. In between comfort, inheritance, righteousness, mercy, presence, adoption, very distinct promises, but, but sandwiching those promises is kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, all right? Now this is a literary tool that's called an inclusio, all right? Inclusio. I think that's Latin or something. I don't know. Um, well, you could call it an envelope. You can call it a sandwich, whatever you want. As long as you get the idea. An inclusio is a frame, right? It's a very explicitly drawn. So the reader will notice, hey, like, look at the top and at the bottom. These are very related things. And that should teach me that everything in between those things are very related. You see what I'm saying? An inclusio is a frame to signal to the reader that a lot of seemingly disconnected ideas relate to one another. And I'm going to argue together with basically every major scholar who's approached this passage that Matthew frames the Beatitudes in this way so that you'll see that they're all fundamentally related. All of these promises are made to kingdom citizens. This is one group we're talking about. This is one group. This is not eight groups. Right? There's not, you know, at the pearly gates, there's not going to be a guy with a clipboard saying... Are you mourning? Are you one of the mourners? Okay, go in line C. All right. Oh, oh, hey, we got a poor in spirit. Okay, line A, please. Line A, please. Right, these are not distinct categories, right? There's not. It's, it's not like, oh, I, I really hope I'm meek. The earth sounds great. Right? This is one group, okay? And that structure is going to be important because we're going to see later on that these things build upon one another in a really beautiful way. All right. These are not random, unassociated blessings. All the blessings of, these, of the kingdom will be granted to kingdom citizens. And boy, is that good news if you are a kingdom citizen. Amen? Okay. All right, so, so much for structure. Let's look at language. This is interesting. Blessed. Blessed. Is blessed the right word? I don't think so. Most people don't think so because our language has gone hairy with this kind of thing. All right? So, blessed, I mean, if you're like me, blessed connotes this, this image of God blessing people. Right? Blessed seems, in the English language, it seems like something that, that comes from above. And while there are the aspects of that that are true of this passage, that's not what this is referring to. All right, so the, this, this word, blessed, uh, has been translated in, in, in four major ways for a long time in English, and that is either blessed, or happy, or fortunate, or well-off, okay? What I want you to see is that there, there is a word in the Greek uh, and in the Hebrew, for God's blessing, God, like God being the active agent who's blessing a people. And that's not the word here. Okay, that's not the word that's being used here. 
this word isn't reflecting God's blessing. It's highlighting the evaluation of others. Um, let me tell you in a different way. It's like somebody saying, boy, that guy's blessed. See what I mean? And happy is actually a pretty solid term, except we use happy in such trivial ways that nobody, nobody would ever place it in this passage. Because you can be happy because, oh, hey, the, the two-for-five special is back at McDonald's, right? So just get rid of happy. Fortunate, I think, is probably the best term. Um, here's what's going on, okay? At the end of all things, the world will look on What we're seeing is the prophetic anticipation of the world looking on the poor in spirit and those who mourn and the meek. In other words, those they've been rejecting all this time. Those they've been outcasting all this time. Those who are the embarrassing party member at a gathering, right? These are people that, that you don't want around. And, and this is the prophetic anticipation that the world is going to look at them and will call them blessed. They'll rise up and call her blessed. That's kind of the image we're looking at. Truly, these are the most fortunate of men. All right? And what you're seeing in this term, blessed, as the world looks on, as, as outsiders look on and they see these groups and they say, wow. Look at that. Right? What you're seeing is you're seeing the inauguration of the upside down kingdom. Right? The last will be first. Okay. Does that make sense? All right. Now let's talk about the background. The Beatitudes are the prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah 61 1 through 3. Exactly what Luke was doing with Luke 4, Matthew is doing with the Beatitudes, right? They're structured so that biblical readers, Bible readers will say, oh, poor, mourning? Oh, I I got it. This is is relating to something Isaiah said, right? The Beatitudes are the prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. I want to read that to you. I'm going to read that passage to you, and then we'll get into it. All right. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. Amen. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. All right, so this prophecy is is a prophecy that good news will be announced to the poor, 
and to the brokenhearted and to the imprisoned and to the mourning. So here are my questions. Is this a generic promise to people who have no money? Or to people who are sad? Or to prisoners? And if not, if that's not the case, if this is not just a general proclamation of the, of the turning around of someone's fortune, if that's not the case, what sort of poor are we talking about? What, what made them poor? Why, why are they brokenhearted? Why are they imprisoned? What, what caused them to mourn in the first place? Now those are good questions, and those questions are answered by Matthew 1.3, Jesus' first statement, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And we're going to tease this out here in a minute, but it really makes sense of Isaiah's promise, right? Because you remember, who's the audience that Isaiah's writing to? Exiles. Exiles. The promises of Isaiah were written to comfort an exiled generation. And why were they exiled? Because they broke the covenant over and over and over again. Because they sinned against God over and over and over again. These are people made poor because of their own sin. These are people brokenhearted because of their own sin. These are people imprisoned because of their own debts. Right? And they're mourning over their own actions. I think this dynamic is the key to understanding the Beatitudes. All the promises of the kingdom belong exclusively to those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. I want to repeat that. All of the promises of the kingdom belong exclusively to those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. And the reason I believe this is the key to understanding the Beatitudes is that none of the other promises make sense without this one. None of them. You don't mourn over your sin if you don't understand your spiritual poverty. You aren't meek. You don't hunger after righteousness. You aren't merciful unless you've been shown great mercy, right? This is the foundation. You want to be a kingdom citizen? This is where it starts. The implication. To Isaiah and the implication of the Beatitudes is that we, we are the exiles. And we are the covenant breakers. And we are the spiritually bankrupt. And our only hope is Jesus, the Redeemer King. The message of Isaiah fulfilled in the message of Jesus on the mount is that everyone who recognizes his spiritual bankruptcy, everyone who mourns over her sin, Everyone who has sold himself into slavery and longs for freedom has a place in the kingdom of heaven. Amen? 
because they are the poor in spirit. Isaiah's message of hope to an exiled people is fulfilled in our Redeemer King Jesus. He offers the kingdom of heaven to those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy. I'm going to say something, and you might have a problem with it, and I'm okay with that. This seems like an oversimplification. I'm okay with that. As soon as you're ready to admit, I have done nothing. I have nothing to bring to you, God. I am a beggar. I am lost and broken and exiled because of my sin, and I am ruined in my sin. My only hope is your mercy. As soon as you're ready to admit that, you're ready for the kingdom. You say, surely it's more complicated than that. I'm going to show you proof. You can read these for yourself later. That's fine. I've got the references here. I'm just going to read them to you. One of the criminals hanging next to Jesus railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You want more proof? Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax collector. Tax collectors were despicable people, by the way. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's just, let's just keep going. I'm going to give you a little bit more proof, just, just in case. <laughs> one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that she was reclining at table, when, when she learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. God, I love Jesus. 
And he said, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they would not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. He said to him, you're right. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in here, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he is, who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Do you want to inherit a kingdom of unimaginable peace and joy and glory and hope and life? Run to the king of unimaginable mercy. Admit your spiritual bankruptcy. Mourn over your sin and run to the Redeemer King because He is rich in mercy. Okay. That's the framework. That's the foundation. We're going to build on that the next few weeks, but I want to give you some takeaways. First, the appropriate response to exile is to mourn in spiritual bankruptcy. Okay, listen. This world is uncomfortable. You wake up burdened sometimes for no reason you can even land on. You can't be better no matter how hard you try, your life feels miserable. You are hungry, but you don't know what for. Every time you try and sate that hunger, it just comes back again, and things are hard. You are in exile. You are in exile. Maybe you're not seeing in three dimensions the full nature of your own sin. That's okay. It will come. Look around you. This, we try and pretend like this world is... We're only steps away from utopia. It's not true. This, we've been falling apart since the beginning. Everybody knows that. Turn on the news. You, as soon as you recognize you're in exile... The, the appropriate response is to mourn and recognize your spiritual bankruptcy. That is the first step of the gospel. That's why the gospel is so embarrassing to talk about with strangers because you're basically implying that they are broken and ruined in their sin. But that's okay because they are. You can't get to Jesus unless you start there. Okay, that's my invitation. If you're not a Christ follower, stick around. Let's talk about spiritual bankruptcy. Let's talk about it, okay? 
That's my invitation to you who are not in Christ. Mourn over your sin, recognize your spiritual bankruptcy, and run to the Redeemer King. Okay? That's my invitation. My invitation to you who are in Christ is that spiritual bankruptcy is a lifestyle, not an event. You see what I'm see where I'm going? Like it's not we don't recognize our sin, run to Jesus, and then we're okay. And everything's fine. We're just waiting for the kingdom. This I have nothing to offer. It's only you, Lord. That is the theme of our prayers from beginning to end. Amen. Rinse and repeat. You find yourself in sin, fall down in mourning. Listen to James. He's like, mourn, weep, rend your garments, put ashes on your head. He's talking to the church. Right? You see sin in your life. Admit your bankruptcy and run to the Redeemer King. Very related, spiritual bankruptcy should fuel your prayer life. If you find yourself prayerless, it's very likely that you are not fully aware of the implications of your spiritual bankruptcy. Right? find yourself prayerless, you're probably not perpetually staring and mourning over and pleading with the Lord about your sin. Right? Don't ignore it. We're preparing for a kingdom where that's not okay. Right? But our our Redeemer King is ready. Confess your sin. He's faithful and just to cleanse you from sin and Okay, you get it. Okay. Second to last, praise the Redeemer King who forgives the the debts of the spiritually bankrupt. If you find yourself lacking affection for Christ, spend some time reading the Gospels, and remember that you are the lady weeping. Right? You're the tax collector. You're the thief on the cross. That's you. You want to you stir your heart toward affection for Christ that leads to His praise and a robust prayer life and service to His people out of gratitude and, and, and dwell on the work of Christ in your life. And it'll be easier to do that if you recognize that the kingdom belongs to the spiritually bankrupt right now. Right now. That present tense scenario is not just to signal to you that there's a frame here. It would have been easy enough, I guess, for Matthew to say, this is a frame Present tense. For yours is the kingdom. Yours is the kingdom right now. If you are poor in spirit, if you have run to Jesus and recognized your spiritual bankruptcy and, and pled for mercy, and if you received the mercy of God in Christ, and if you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, your, your kingdom, it's yours now. All right? Which really softens the blow 
when you have financial strain. It really softens the blow when things don't go your way at work. And it really softens the blow when you find that one of your best friends has cancer. Yes, these things are hard. And for a moment, we will weep together. But ours is the kingdom. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, guys.